Thanks, Zach. Good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us on this day. Um, today we're going to uh, be continuing our series. We'll enter into week two, uh, still in chapter one on uh, the book of Revelation. And if you were here with us last week, last week was a bit of an intro. And what we talked about last week is that the revelation of Christ is a, is a culmination of, of multiple literary forms. We, the book is apocalyptic, it is prophetic, but it is also a personal pastoral letter that John is writing to the people of God. And it is a letter specifically written to the local church, to be read aloud in the church, promising even a blessing for the churches that would read this book aloud. And so uh, we're excited to dive in uh, this morning. To This morning, things take a little bit different turn. We leave the introductory phase, and as you heard Zach read, we're going to dive in to some really heavy stuff. The title of our sermon this morning is The Glorified Christ because that is who John stands in the midst of. And so this morning, we will discuss the plan of Christ the person of Christ, and ultimately the power of Christ. Would you pray uh, with me to that end that we might see those things? Father, you are magnificent. You are surely one to behold. Holy Spirit, would you help us to have that right posture this morning? As we, as we hear of John, oh Lord, and he, he, he saw you, he stood in the midst of you, he, he fell as though dead. Lord, we know that we could not be in your midst, we could not see your glory in full strength, but we, we ask that you might just give us a glimpse, uh, that you might shelter us behind your strong arm and begin to just, just, just allow us to see a glimpse of your glory this morning, that it might change, make everything else in our lives seem small in comparison. Lord, would you do that for us? through your word, which is perfect and true and good. Hide me behind your cross this morning, Lord. Reveal yourself to us in might. I ask these things in your good name. Amen. This morning we start, we see the plan of Christ. And we see it somewhat subtly in the very life of John himself, where it's led him here in this text. In verse 9 through 11, Zach read this. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, what is on the island called Patmos. Last week, I, as, a, as a bit of an introduction, I shared some differing views, both on the identity of John and the reason that he was in Patmos. I shared that commentators, there were some different approaches on this. Some believed this to, this to be John the Apostle. Others believe that because he does not reference himself as the Apostle, it could be someone else with the same name. Some believe that John was exiled to Patmos as a prisoner, and others think that there might be the chance that he exiled himself in order to be secluded and to receive this revelation of God. This morning, I wanted to share those views as a bit of an intro, but this morning I'll just clarify where I'm coming from. I do believe that the revelation was written by the Apostle John, and I do believe that John was on the Isle of Patmos because he had been sent there as a prisoner for his faithfulness to Jesus. And so with that view in mind, if this is the John the Apostle, as I believe it is, then he is certainly one who is familiar with suffering and who is well acquainted with grief. And in verse 9, when we understand those things, we are reminded that it is the plan of Christ that we suffer for the kingdom. The demise of American Christianity, many of our struggles today, 
has much to do with our desire to create a faith void of suffering, to create a discipleship that costs us little. We live in a place where we desire and hold in high regard and are taught from a young age to value the American dream above all else. And if we can somehow also attach our faith to that, that would just be the best of both worlds. Yet the gospel does not allow the best of both worlds, but calls us to fully surrender to Christ. John was the last living apostle. He would be over 90 years old when Revelation is written. He's seen many things. He's known many trials. His brother James would have been martyred by, for his faith already. Peter and Paul have both died at this point. He is a man who is acquainted with grief, yet has remained faithful. And what has his faithfulness earned him here on earth? Exiled to the Isle of Patmos. As I said last week, Patmos was an island roughly 70 miles southwest of Ephesus. It's about 10 miles long and about 6 miles wide. It's a mountainous island. It was used as a location to banish prisoners, and those exiled here would often be sentenced to hard labor in the midst of the rock quarries. John was likely a prisoner of Patmos, exiled there under the reign of Emperor Domitian. And as a Christian, like John was considered to be a member of an illegal Christian or an illegal religious sect. An exile was a very common form of punishment in this day. History tells us that Domitian actually exiled his own niece as well. The book of Revelation will teach us over the course of this year that the gospel demands devotion from Christ's people and that this devotion is tested and affirmed through suffering. For the Christian, suffering is to be expected. It is not the exception, but it is the norm. To follow after Jesus is to endure trial and opposition. Any gospel that says anything other than that is a blatant lie that contradicts our Savior himself. We, should, we, 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 we cannot expect wealth and privilege as we follow in the footsteps of a Savior who is often homeless, having nowhere to lay his head. We cannot expect to be void of, of suffering and pain when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus whose life on earth culminated on the cross before his resurrection. We must fight the drift towards seeing suffering, though through the world's perspective. The world views self and satisfaction as the highest of human virtues. And if you believe that, then of course the idea of suffering is abrasive. If what matters most in life is ultimately what's best for me and what will allow me to flourish and feel good, then suffering should be avoided at all costs. But I believe that the gospel, for those of us who are his, tells us that suffering is meant for something very different. Through Christ, we see that suffering is not punishment born through vindication. It is sanctification birthed through adornment of a loving father. The reason suffering is painful is not merely because of the pain itself, but it's because something you have been trusting in, whether you knew it or not, is lost. You see, when you suffer, you don't only suffer the loss of a thing, whatever that is, be, a, be it a feeling, a possession, a person, but you also suffer the loss of the identity and security that that thing provided you. 
And in that way, through suffering, God reveals our idol of self. Suffering reveals our pride in what we can accomplish. When we lose the ability to produce our own security, we often find we have grown to idolize our own abilities. We value self-sufficiency oftentimes above intimacy with our Father. Physical health and means are good things. They're gifts from a loving God, and they are meant to posture us into a position of worship, to provoke us to praise, acknowledging the one who gives us health, the one who gives us means, the one who gives us all things. Yet often, they lead us to adore our self-reliance. In the Old Testament, God talks about, they were hungry, I fed them, then they left me. This is the, this is the natural tendency of, of sinful humans. We, we ask, God gives, and then we quickly become convinced that what God clearly gave us, we earned or we did on our own, and then we don't need the Lord anymore. And then as a gracious God, he calls us back to him through suffering. In mercy, God reminds us who we are versus who he is. And in suffering, God invites us to return to a correct posture Trusting in him alone. Weakness, pain, dependence, they reveal what was always true all along. We are dependent on God for all things. That doesn't change just when we think we're not. It's just when we come to a place where it's obvious that we're not, what was always true can no longer be ignored. And therein lies the grace. All that we have is a gift held together provided by God for his glory. When we lose the things that have kept us from seeing God rightly, the loss becomes an invitation to a new and better way forward. And God doesn't leave us alone in these spaces of loss. What we see here today is that like Peter and Paul before him, John receives the greatest revelation of his life during a time of extreme suffering and extreme loss. On a bleak, barren island under brutal conditions, John receives a divine vision for the future. Might that give us hope for what God is doing in us? And, what he, and even, even just bigger than that, what God is doing in his church right now. That in seasons where all feels lost, in seasons where I've reached the bottom, if I am in Christ, I know that for me, all things are working together for my good. That my, dark, my lowest seasons are meant to contrast with the magnificence of God in light of who I, my smallness. And we're going to see in the rest of this text that that is exactly, God has positioned John for the, in this posture, through this loss, in this grief, because he's going to contrast John's position with his magnificence. But before that, not only is it the plan of God to suffer, but it's not the plan of Christ that we suffer alone. It is the plan of Christ that we serve his church and that we walk through these things together. Verses 10 and 11 say, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, 
and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. John describes himself as being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And we, we talked about last week, John served in a prophetic role amongst these churches in the, the province of Asia. His job, he would come to these churches and share a word from the Lord. And so on the day that they're gathered, God is uniting him with them, and the, the, the same Spirit that moves them is speaking to John. And this phrase, the, Lord's, the Spirit on the Lord's Day, occurs four times in Revelation. And it attests to the prophetic role at this season of John's life and ministry. Like the Old Testament prophets before him, the Lord had taken a hold of him in a supernatural state that he might receive a direct revelation from God. But what is amazing about this revelation that is given to John is that it is for the local church. It is for the bride of Christ. It is to be delivered to the local churches in the region where John served. But not only was it intended for those churches, as I said last week, the number seven reflects this idea of completeness. It's a very important number in Scripture used many times. It reflects the seventh day where God said that declared all to be good. Seven paints this picture of completeness. And in this way, these seven churches reflect all of the body of Christ. This letter was not only for the churches in Asia, even though it's going to address specific things happening in their midst but it is for you as well. God loves his church, and in the midst of suffering, John is not to cease from serving her faithfully, and nor are we in this season. And this leads us to the person of Christ. The purpose of Christ is that we would suffer, but that we would do so together for his glory, recognizing the grace that it is to endure difficulty in his name. But all of that, our hope for that is found in the person of Christ. Verse 12 through 16 says this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. In verses 12 through 16, we see perhaps the most incredible description of our Savior in all of Scripture. When we consider the dual natures of Christ, we often think only of the relatable man. We think of, of, of God putting on flesh. We think about Jesus in the way that is relatable, which is well and good. But we can tend to shy away from the image of the glorified Christ. Yet this text invites us to join John being in the presence of the Lord. As John stands before the Lord, he sees seven golden lampstands. And verse 20 tells us that these are reflective of the seven churches to whom this letter is going to be delivered. As lampstands, they held these little oil lamps. And we see that the will of God is that His light might shine in the dark world through His churches. And this is still the call today. The intent of rooted church is that we might glorify the Lord 
by being the light of God here in Joplin and in the places where God has us. This is God's plan shown to John through this imagery. And among the lampstands, John sees a man standing in the midst. And this man is gracious to reveal himself. He is the Son of Man. This is Christ's favorite title for himself. It's used 81 times in the Gospels. This term comes from and is seen initially in Daniel 7 to describe a vision of the Son. Jesus is fully God and fully man, dwelling here in his eternal kingdom. And he's walking amongst the lampstands. The lampstands are symbolic of the church and Christ is not standing over them. Christ is not, he is intentionally standing in the midst of the lampstands. He is not detached from his church. He is among us. He's watching us. He's working with us. He's not unfamiliar with our challenges, our doubts and struggles. He's not, he wasn't surprised by COVID. He wasn't none of these things. Christ stands, the Son of Man stands in the midst of the lampstands because he hasn't forsaken his church. He's with us. And like John, we might find encouragement to prevail as we marvel at his magnificence. In verses 13 through 16, we see exactly that. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his neck. John gazes on Christ, and yet it's to be understood that what he describes, words can, can, can merely begin to attempt to do justice to, but his words can give us a glimpse of the glory of Christ. In verse 13, this long robe and golden sash that's wrapped around his, his chest. Exodus 28 tells us that this is, the, uh, this is what the clothing of an Old Testament priest. In his clothing, Jesus shows us that he is our great high priest, that he has interceded on our behalf for our transgressions. And verse 14 tells us that his head and hair were like wool. And in this description, we see another important parallel to Daniel 7. In the same chapter from which John is referencing the term like a son of man, we see God the Father is described in a similar way that Christ is described here in Revelation. Daniel 7, 9 says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. John is describing Christ in terms used for God himself. And the imagery points to the eternal, ageless wisdom of Jesus. In a society where all of us, where many, where everyone is seeking to avoid aging, aka to avoid suffering, the Bible paints a very different picture. Proverbs 16.31 says, A white head is a crown of glory. And Leviticus 19.32, it says, You will rise up before the white head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You might assume that Christ in glory would reveal himself with the features of eternal youth. Perhaps I would assume maybe he would look like one of those tabloid models at the, at the counter at the supermarket or something, you know, the, just like, like Thor or something like that. That's what I would assume in my head. Yet this is not so. 
John wants us to see something about the divine dignity of Christ and the wisdom associated with perfect eternal age. He is the Ancient of Days. He has all of the wisdom of eternity, yet he is not weak. He does not grow weary. And in this way, we are reminded again of our place versus his. And through the rest of this text, the imagery of who he is reminds us, tells us something about him. In that same verse, verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. And in his eyes, we see his holiness. Our true condition, both as individuals and as churches, are fully transparent to him. Through his eyes, he can see all that is true. Yet he has chosen us. He, he, through the, the eyes of Christ, through his lens of perfect holiness, he sees me and the wretch that I am. And yet he's chosen, chosen me. He's made me an heir to the kingdom. He delights in me. He knows the churches that John is to address in intimate detail. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to see descriptions of these churches, and we're going to see that they kind of, in many ways, describe the church today. And verse 15 says, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And his feet we see that he is unmoving. He has walked through the furnace of this world and come out unfaced. His feet are strong and stable. While the winds of sin will surely blow us over, they cast us to and fro. Like, just I can be on top of a mountain today and in the darkest valley tomorrow. That's just a normal, that's just called Sunday, Monday for me. Like, that's just a normal who I am. That is not who Christ is. He is firm stable, unwavering. And in his announcement, we see his power. His voice is authoritative to those who are his. John Shirley had been listening to the sea crash up across the island. Like as he's a prisoner on Patmos, surely this was kind of the background noise of his life for as long as he had been there. And that's the only thing he can think of to describe something as magnificent and loud and echoing and bold as the voice of Jesus. The, the sound is the best way he can describe the sovereign voice of the Lord. And in verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. In his right hand, we take confidence in his protection. The right hand is, the, is symbolic of, it's the hand of authority, the hand of honor. And Christ holds his most cherished possession in his right hand. And it's us. It's his church. We won't be snatched away from him. In Christ, we may surely stumble, but we can rest soundly and we can fight courageously because the Lord God Almighty, the Lord who stands before John, the Lord who, like, John's in his midst and he almost loses his life. Like, the magnificence of Jesus is so much, John can't even stand up. And that Lord, King Jesus, holds us in his right hand. The winds will come. They will blow us over. They will cause fear in us, but we need to remember where we sit. We can rest 
We can take time to let things go and to just be with Jesus because the world doesn't depend on us. You are not God's best plan. Like His will will go forth. You can rest and delight in the Savior. And after a time of rest, you can get up and fight courageously, not fearing the enemy because you sit in the right hand of Jesus. And in his sword, we see justice. We live in a world that as much as any time in my lifetime is crying out for justice. Yet, the innate knowledge that something is surely wrong seldom leads us to gaze upon our brokenness as being the very cause of what is wrong. And in Revelation, the description of Christ's sword, it's heavy, it's long, it's sharp on both sides. This is referenced six times in Revelation. It's important to understand, like there's a reason why the sword comes from his mouth. The sword is the word of God. It's perfect in judgment. All that the perfect justice we desire will one day be and is coming forth and his word points to such and is the very, the way that such comes forth. It's our absolute authority coming from the very mouth of our Savior himself. It can cure, it can provide healing, but make no mistake, it will also destroy the enemies of God. It brings life to those who cherish it but it causes agony for those who use it wrongly, as does any weapon. And in his face, we see his glory. Verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Ever remember like when you were a kid and you would just like, this is probably just me, this might be an embarrassing uh, reference here. But you just want to like, how long can I stare at the sun? Anybody else? No, just me. All right. I just remember as a kid, like I was just so drawn to like, why can't I look at this? Like, it's crazy. There's a huge thing in the sky. And I don't know, like boys do dumb things. I just wanted to see, I would try to look at it. And I would always like for a few moments, I couldn't even see. And that is me as far away from the sun as I am. Like, we, we get burned if we're outside for an hour while the sun is shining from there. And John is using the only parallel he can come up with to paint a depiction of, like, his face. is like the sun in full strength. He couldn't, even, he couldn't even look upon it without falling down and almost losing his life. John saw Jesus as he is, the one whom no man can refuse. Awesome, powerful majestic. He is abundantly worthy of all that we have and so much more. Truth belongs to him alone. The glorified Christ rightly humbles and exalts those whom are his. In this picture, we see our right position before the Lord, which is humbling but that also empowers us in where we are, that we follow in the, like, well, he is, we are his. And thus we should fear nothing. This is leading us to the power of Christ. In verses 17 and 18, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
In verse 17 and 18, we are reminded that he lives forever. John was overwhelmed by the presence of the Lord. Almost lost his life standing in the front of the, of the Lord. Yet Jesus puts his hand on him and tells him to stop being afraid. For he is the first and the last. He starts, he finishes. He is the creator and he is the one who stands redeemed. And all the in-between belongs to him as well. He was dead, but now is alive forevermore so that for those of us who are his, we will never die again. And he has authority over death. Death has no dominion over Christ's church, and it is why it has not been able to stop Christ's church. Our bodies will surely give out, but Hades will not have our souls. Not if we are his. He holds the keys in his hand, he alone. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And in verse 19, we see that he has a great divine plan. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. This verse right here is very important in understanding all that is about to come. It's very important in having an understanding of this book. Christ himself is describing the contents of Revelation. He says, in what you have seen, this is referring to Revelation 1, 9 through 20. He's talking about the right now. As Christ stands before John, and John is still like in just a bewildered stage, I can't even imagine, Christ is referencing that. Write about what you have seen, and then what is Revelations 2 through 3 is what that falls under. What is, he's gonna, we're going to see what's actually happening in the world over the next two chapters. And then he says, and what will take place after this? And that's going to be Revelation 4 through 22. That's going to be most of the book. At times, Revelation will step back in history, but ultimately the revelation of Christ is moving towards the final consummation of heaven and earth. As we close this morning, I'll end by reading from verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I want to encourage you this morning, not only as we study this book, but as we enter into a season of discipleship. Yesterday, uh, our, our men's group, we gathered together. We had breakfast and we discussed election. It was heavy, okay? Like we're entering into some heavy things. Many, uh, for all of you who are a part of a family group, our ladies are gonna get ready to enter, have their first DNA group this next week. And we're gonna dive into some heavy scripture together. And Brandon is leading us in rooted school where we're gonna be taking a seminary level class seeking to understand the full scope of God's plan throughout redemptive history. In all of these things, it's important to remember right here that as we sang, the Lord will help us to see. He will help us to see what is true. He breaks it down, this magnificent, almighty Lord with a sword coming from his mouth, and he stoops down and he explains to John what he saw. He doesn't leave him alone in that. Just as the Lord's prayer that we read is a divine gift, God teaches us to do specifically what we ought. And so in this case, he's gracious to teach us about his word. 
He tells John exactly what the things he saw meant. Often in this book, we see the gracious Christ who taught his disciples patiently, explaining the symbols and signs to us today as he's doing for John. And so I encourage you in that, like, be in his word, commit to his word, and call on him for help, because he desires to give you that. The Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit of God is your great helper. You are not dependent on anyone else. The, the Word of God has been gifted to you, and the Spirit of the Lord helps you to see that which is true. This morning, I, I'll end by giving you a summary of our text uh, by John Piper. As I read uh, a little bit about John Piper writing on Revelation 1, this quote stuck out to me as just a great summary of what we've learned today. The one with power over the nations and with everlasting dominion and glory, he is the great high priest that has put away the sins of his people once and for all. He is aged and wise and mature and the great white crowned ancient of days. Yet with eyes that are aflame with the fire of youth and energy and hope and exhilaration for his unstoppable plans for you and for this church and for the world. Gaze upon Jesus and let his royal power and his priestly forgiveness and his ancient wisdom and his fiery hope fill you with confidence afresh that the past has not been in vain and that the future will be the appointed brushstroke on the canvas of your life and on the canvas of history until the great mosaic of God's work is done. So rooted church this morning, I want to send you with this. Because these things are true, because God so loved you that he sent his only son to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death, so that there would no longer be condemnation for you, but everlasting hope and joy in Christ Jesus. Do not fear time. He's the first, and he's the last. You don't need to fear time. Steward it wisely. He knows. He is the God of the beginning, he's the God of the end, and he is surely the God of the in-between. Do not fear life. Do not let your, your, your mood, your joy be determined by what the stock market quotes are, but what, by what the guy on the news said last night. It is he who is alive forevermore. And do not fear death, for he holds the key, and he surely put death in his grave. Will you pray with me this morning? Jesus, thank you for being our great high priest. Thank you for making a way for us. We are unworthy to be in the midst of your holiness, and yet you invite us in. And God, we would surely be, we would surely just, it would be an incredible act of grace if you had merely forgiven our sins, Lord. But you didn't just forgive our sins. You, you invite us in. You made us heirs. But yet, Lord, we still fear petty things. Lord, help my unbelief. Why do I, why do I fear petty things? 
Why do I waver to and fro when you, when you hold me in your right hand? Lord, forgive me of such things. Help me to see what is true. Lord, would your sword guide me in all things? Would I cling to your word rightly? Lord, what an incredible act of grace that you would, you would give your word to me. And that you would not only give your word to me, but your, your spirit would dwell in me and allow me to see that which is true. You've given us access to you. Lord, that we, we can partake this morning in the, the revelation of John. Like we get, to, we get to be, we get to enter into your midst through your word. Father, thank you. God, would I, never, would I never forsake such a precious gift? And forgive me when I inevitably will. God, would you change us through the power of your word? Lord, I believe you have called us to something significant. I believe you've called us to something that is both ordinary and magnificent. Help us to be, uh, just to reflect you in the day-to-day -day things that you've called us to. But help us to never forsake the divine invitation you have given us to dwell in your glorious presence. And in the culmination of those two realities, might the world that we live in be transformed by the power of the gospel? I ask these things in your good name, King Jesus. Amen.